Welcome back to Journal Spotting. Have you been trying to keep up with the medical literature, but you don't have time, don't know where to start, and you'd like someone to do the legwork for you? Your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to Journal Spotting. We are back with the climate zone to fill your green ears with more evidence-based facts on the links between climate change and health. We want to inspire you, healthcare professionals around the world, to go away and try and affect change in organisations that you work in and in any way that you can. Sadly, uh, the other bald guy with bad jokes on this podcast, Barney, can't be with us due to an unwell toddler. We are definitely wishing him all the best. But this episode, we are back with two climate champions, Dr. LJ Smith, consultant in respiratory medicine, and internal medicine trainee, Dr. Katya Florman. Guys, last time we met, LJ set us the challenge of going plastic-free for one whole month. How did you both get on? Well, I think I should probably speak before LJ, but she probably did better <laughs> than I did. Um, it, it was hard. You basically can't have any snacks or have anything bought that's not from your own home. So after a few days of, I, I gave in, I think it was a naked bar in the hospital, <laughs> uh, Smith's that got me. <laughs> what about you, LJ? I'm sure you I did better. No, I did not do better. I had a almost exactly the same experience. So snacks were such a problem. I mean, I honestly mm. just don't have the time to make my own nut bars all the time. I do loads of cooking mm. from home and I do take my own lunch, but snacks were such a big problem. And then just like household items. So I did okay. switch up some of our cleaning products to the ones where you just buy the tablet rather than the whole. Uh, and so you have a reusable, um, reusable, oh, yeah, how to we have those tablet, the ones like the dishwasher tablets, and they come in a, a cardboard box with a post. Small that kind of thing. Is it small? Did you find oh, that? It wasn't small. It was from a supermarket, but it's the same idea. The idea oh, being, yeah. you don't need to ship a massive plastic container full of liquid. You just need to ship the tablets and mm. reuse the container. So I'm, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. Okay, but that seems like a small change when there's so much plastic in my life so I keep looking for options but tricky yeah it's so hard I so yeah I didn't do well at all but started doing a lot worse when I started this new job at a hospital which I don't think I should really name but um basically it looks like nobody trusts the drinking water at the hospital and there are bottles of little plastic bottles of water like the little ones absolutely everywhere they're like regular shipments being delivered onto the wards of these tiny little plastic bottles and i i've been trying to inquire if the drinking water is actually bad and no one actually knows it's like just this thing which has started so i don't know anyways there's a qi project in there somewhere lg i think i need your help but for sure so much plastic (laughs) oh gosh anyways so that didn't go too well but we tried and you know incremental changes we'll keep trying we'll keep trying Yeah, so stick around and listen to the end to hear what climate challenge we will be uh, trying to take on next. LJ, we are super excited to hear who you've been chatting to. Do you want to tell us um, what you've got for us this month? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I might have mentioned in our first Climate Zone episode that I'm vegan. I don't know. I drop it into conversation sometimes. (laughs) So I follow a fully plant-based diet and this really helps me massively reduce my carbon footprint and my environmental impact overall, especially compared to the average UK diet. So today I'm really hoping just to nudge you all a little further along that path. You might not feel able to commit to fully 
fully vegan diet right now, but you might be able to move forwards. And to help you to do this and to convince you why it's so impactful, I've interviewed a real expert. Yes, we know that we should definitely be following in your footsteps, LJ. I've been vegetarian for a few years, but ultimately I come on bear to say goodbye to the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> just There's so many good cheese puns. Anyway. It's just because Barney's not here. You're taking on the puns. I know, <laughs> and I should <laughs> probably have not. So tell us, who have you interviewed? So I've interviewed Dr. Shireen Kassam. She's a consultant hematologist at King's College Hospital with a specialist interest in lymphoma. Um, And the reason I spoke to her is that she's absolutely passionate about promoting plant-based nutrition for the prevention and reversal of chronic disease. Shireen discovered the power of plant-based nutrition back in 2013. And since then, she's completely immersed herself in the science of nutrition and health. And this has included completing the eCornell certification in plant-based nutrition. She's also a board certified lifestyle medicine physician, and she works at Winchester University on her days when she's not a full-time consultant, where she provides the UK's first university course on plant-based nutrition. She sounds like she needs to eat a lot of lentils in the morning to get through that schedule. Uh, a lot of energy. What is super exciting about what we're going to listen to is it sounds like not only are we going to hear things that are beneficial to us personally, but also to our patients. That's really, really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Shireen actually founded an organization called Plant-Based Health Professionals UK in 2017, which is a non-profit organization. And this is providing evidence-based education on plant-based nutrition um, for patients and physicians. And in January 2021, she also co-founded and launched the UK's first regulated online plant-based lifestyle medicine healthcare service, plant-based healthcare online. So she really is doing so much in this area. And it was really great to speak to her about her interest in plant-based nutrition and the health of both our patients and the planet. And just before we get started, LJ, for the listeners, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't hesitate to get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, or journalspotting at gmail.com. Okay, on with the interview. Thanks so much for joining us and talking about and your interest in plant-based diets and helping us understand how that links to the climate, it would be really great if you could start off just telling us how you became interested in this area because your background is haematology and it's not obvious to people, you know, it's not a natural fit to then be an expert on plant-based diets. Thanks, LJ, and thanks for inviting me on this podcast. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, I love talking about a topic that's now become a great um, passion for me. I adopted a plant-based diet back in 2013, having been vegetarian since 2001, but it was only back in 2013 that somehow I came across all the information that um, really um, allowed me to understand better the dairy and the egg industry and um, eating eggs and dairy no longer was um, comfortable for me, both ethically and morally. So I adopted a plant-based diet or a vegan diet for ethical reasons. But when I did that, it opened up this um, wealth of information that supported a plant-based diet um, for promoting um, health in humans and its um, great um, positive impact on the climate. So really, it was a win-win-win situation, as it were. And I've delved in quite deeply into the data on um, plant-based diets and health specifically. Thank you. I think that's a common story that when people start looking into just the impact of diet on various things, so people often come to the area from an ethical perspective, but the more you read, the more it seems there are more good reasons to then be adopting a more plant-based approach to your diet. Can you tell us a bit about 
what you what was most striking for you in terms of the link between the climate crisis and diet and why as a health care professional that's become an interest of yours yes i mean i think it took um me um, adopting a plant-based diet to really understand how our food system connects all the crises that we're facing the one of health climate and ecological and my father always makes me say say the soil crisis as well because the health of our soil has greatly deteriorated and it can all be all be tracked back to our farming system Um, so I'm sure your listeners already know that probably around a third of greenhouse gas emissions um, are generated by our food system in general and a half or just over half of that is purely from animal agriculture, whether it's from raising the animals themselves or it's from growing food for the animals that are then fed to rear um, the animals for food. Um, And that sort of statistic was quite alarming to me. I had not realised. And of course, it's not just about greenhouse gas emissions. Um, Our reliance on animal agriculture as a source of food um, really increases um, the contribution of animal agriculture to land and water pollution, to the loss of biodiversity, to deforestation. Um, And it's also driving um, some health Um, issues in our population and society at large you know we're in the middle of a pandemic and you know more than three quarters of pandemics can be stemmed back to our relationship with animals whether it be the destruction of their habitats or the fact that we are farming animals intensively in what we call um, factory farms Um, and then of course what we deal with on a day-to-day basis in a hospital setting antibiotic resistance Um, you know somewhere between 30 to 70 percent of all antibiotics used depending on which country you're in is um, used for in in use in animal agriculture Um, and this overuse is really causing a problem for us as humans who are acquiring these antibiotic resistant infections Um, and you know it's predicted that if this trend doesn't stop that by um, 2050 um, we will be losing 10 million people a year from antibiotic resistant infections so this can all be tied back to our desire to um, eat animals um, and it's something that we can change so immediately that really paints a real horror story, doesn't it, in terms of what the future consequences might be. I guess we're starting to see some of those consequences already very strongly in terms of climate change. But as you say, the reality is, if we continue like this, really, we're likely to see more and more crises from the point of view of infectious diseases, antibiotic resistance, and I guess also a health crisis in terms of chronic diseases. Can you say a bit more about the evidence base for the advantages of a plant-based diet when we're thinking about chronic disease? Yeah, I know that's something that I'm really very interested in. And just looking back at a large report from 2019 from the Global Burden of Disease Study Group published in the um, Lancet, I mean, that sort of set a baseline for us that one in five deaths globally, and that includes the UK, are caused by an unhealthy diet. And then that report that was looking at 198 countries around the world delved in deeply to ask, well, what is it about our unhealthy diet? What is it that we're doing wrong? Um, And first, 
first and foremost, we're eating diets that are too high in salt, which is a reflection of our um, reliance on processed and prepackaged foods. But um, second, third, fourth and fifth to that is the fact that we're just not eating enough plant foods. We're not eating enough fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts and seeds, um, because at the end of the day, those are the only foods that have been associated with health promotion and prevention of chronic illness. Um, and, you know, conversely, in high and a lot of middle income countries, um, instead of eating fruits and vegetables, we're eating too much um, animal based foods, particularly red and processed meat, which undoubtedly have adverse effects on health. Um, and, you know, for me, the data is overwhelming that an unhealthy diet is, is contributing to ill health and that diet is too reliant on animal based foods and not high enough in whole plant foods. And it's not just one study we're looking at. We're looking at decades of research and actually even going back to, you know, dietary guidelines back in 1980, you know, we, we all look to America for, for their dietary guidelines and that sort of trickles through to other countries. We've been told, you know, we should be eating a diet that's low in saturated fat because of its direct contribution to um, raising cholesterol and then heart disease. Well, saturated fat comes from animal based foods, we should be eating a diet high in fiber. Well, that only is found in whole plant foods. And we're failing to do that. Um, we're failing to eat even five portions of fruits and vegetables a day here in the UK. Only 28% of adults manage to do that and 18% of children. So, I mean, we, we know we have known for a long while and we have observational data, we have mechanistic data, you know, where we've looked in laboratory settings um, and we have um, data from randomized clinical studies that show that if we intervene in a population who have heart disease or type 2 diabetes, that we can actually make a great impact on arresting the progression and in some cases reversing those chronic underlying conditions. I mean, that to me was really striking when I started to learn more about the effect of diet on health conditions. I really felt let down by my previous education. And when I started to read some of these, as you say, large bodies of evidence and at every level of that evidence pyramid, I was really shocked. I think one thing that sometimes is useful is to have one study to show people to kind of convince them that there is really excellent data here. and. I guess the strongest evidence would probably be in heart disease and in diabetes, would you say? I, I completely agree, partly because it's so common. So we have a large number of studies, but because it's so um, intimately connected, you know, the main drivers of cardiovascular disease, particularly heart disease, are elevated blood cholesterol, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, um, and being an unhealthy weight. And those sort of conditions are completely wiped out by adopting a plant-based diet, whether it's 100% plant-based, what people are now calling plant-exclusive, or predominantly plant-based. Um, and same with type 2 diabetes, it's very much driven by a Western diet pattern, high in processed food, but high in animal-derived food and insufficient in all the plant foods which are rich in fiber, micronutrients, and good sources of unsaturated fats. So absolutely. And I think we've, we've been, we're now being taught that we must um, be talking about helping our patients to go back into remission from diabetes. It's no longer acceptable to say we control diabetes lifelong. We should be offering patients the chance to reverse diabetes because it is caused by uh, our lifestyle habits. Um, and a plant-based diet has been shown to be able to reverse type 2 diabetes pretty rapidly. 
Amazing. Um, one thing I think people struggle with is that um, there's a lot of discussion and debate in the diet literature. And I guess I'm I'm using that term generously. Um, there's a whole diet industry designed to make money from offering people a way to lose weight and be healthy, um, which, which clearly doesn't work because otherwise they wouldn't continue to make money from it. But I think that can lead to people being confused about what is the best diet. Um, what do you say when people are kind of getting focused on the minutia and debating the advantages of, for example, paleo versus keto versus vegan versus whatever? How do you approach that discussion? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think we have to focus in on the commonalities between um, with, with all these diet patterns. Um, and they all the healthy diets that have been associated with better health outcomes and reduced risk of chronic disease all focus in on a handful of common foods, which are fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, um, or legumes as the group is called, so beans, chickpeas, lentils, pulses, and a portion of nuts and seeds on most days. And, you know, water for thirst, if you enjoy tea and coffee, then that's absolutely fine. There may be some health benefits there, too. Um, so those are the commonalities. And as long as you are focusing your diet around those healthy foods, then what you do around the edges is kind of up to you. And it comes down to a personal choice. Um, so, you know, whether you have a little bit of dairy or eggs or, or you know, um, meat, then that's fine, but that should be the condiment on your plate and the bulk of your plate should come um, full of whole plant foods. Um, but what I do make clear to people when they ask is that we can be um, healthy um, and have a long life where we thrive without chronic illness on a 100% plant-based diet if we do it in the right way, um, which is focusing in on the healthy plant foods rather than overly processed vegan diets. Um, so then it does come down to choice. And then you have to make a choice that sits right with your um, you know, ethical and moral compass, whether it be for animals, for other human health, or for the for the planet. And you know, coming bringing this back to the climate, then the best diet for the climate um, is one that is centered around plant foods and 100% vegan diet or 100% plant-based diet it has the lowest carbon footprint and ecological footprint there is no doubt about that thank you that's really clear um coming back to that um, discussion about the optimal diet um, I think it's helpful to think about that in the broadest concept possible so one of the ways in which obviously the Lancet, the Eat Lancet Commission has gone about this is to ask, well, since we're going to have a population of 10 billion, how can we how can we feed that future population in a way that's equitable and just and that's sustainable in terms of being able to continue to feed that population on an ongoing basis? And I think that's quite a helpful way for healthcare professionals to come at this because we're used to thinking about inequality as a driver of disease and about justice in terms of our health systems. But people do sometimes say, well, veganism is not necessary to save the planet. And they'll use catchy phrases like, oh, it's not the cow, but the how, and often get into this kind of adversarial way of talking about saying, well, it's okay, I'm going to eat my sustainably uh, reared grass fed cow, and that's going to be fine. Um, how would you respond to that? Yeah, well, it's, it's a difficult topic, isn't it? Because it's very nuanced. And you know, on some level, I agree, we don't all have to be vegan in order to save the planet. That That is a fact. But, 
you have to make bigger changes depending on where you are in the world and what is in your gift to do. Um, as you say, it's about access, it's about food justice. Um, and, you know, we're, we have a food system that keeps um, over a billion people hungry, um, yet many of us in, in the West are suffering from problems for overconsumption of, of calories, um, yet they're unhealthy calories. So there is something very unjust and a right to a healthy diet should be considered a human, human right. Um, so coming back to, you know, what choices you make, um, the studies make it quite clear that any plant food, any um, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans have a far less um, contribution um, on the climate and the ecological um, um, well-being of the planet in a positive way than any animal food. Um, so 50% of um, greenhouse gas emissions are caused um, by rearing animals for food. Um, and 50% of that, so 50% of animal agriculture's outputs are due to consuming beef and dairy. So, you know, farming animals that are termed ruminants. Um, so they're digesting um, grass that then generate methane. Um, so, you know, the two most important things that we can do for the climate is to remove beef and lamb, although we're less reliant on that, but beef and lamb and dairy from our diet. And then you will have halved the contribution that animal agriculture makes to the, the climate crisis. Um, yes, there are better ways to source um, your beef, for example, um, but the optimal way is to remove it from your plate um, completely. We don't need um, animal manure. You know, we are having problems with dealing with the vast quantities of manure that's being generated, the nitrous oxide and the methane that comes from it, the pollution it creates, the contamination of plant foods um, from E. coli and such like that then cause foodborne infections. We, we just don't need it. Um, we need a, a, a plant-based food system that, that is sustainable and uses um, you know, the environment and habitats to create that well-being. We don't need the cows to do that as an intermediary. I think it's really helpful to have some really clear recommendations for the most impactful things that people can do. And I think that's really helpful to crystallise just the different reasons why beef is such a problem, both in terms of land use, water use, clearing of um uh, rainforests and then the kind of compounding factors of just the amount of greenhouse gases just how strong a greenhouse gas methane is um, means that it has such a disproportionate effect so I think that seems accessible the other one is obviously dairy and there's been a big growth in plant milks recently and inevitably um, there's then kind of some arguments about oh well maybe this plant milk is actually worse for the environment um, clearly there's been some good data and some comparators on this which is well published what do you advise people when they're considering switching milks and and what do you say to them about which is the best for a health and an environmental perspective yeah, no, great question. I mean, I think the first thing to do is to move away from cow's milk. I mean, whatever you do instead of cow's milk is making a positive contribution. Um, and then thinking about what the best is. Well, you, you can argue it different ways, can't you? You know, for example, almond milk um, uses a lot of water, but creates much less greenhouse gas emissions. Um, soya creates a bit more greenhouse gas emissions, but uses uh, far less um, water. But but putting it all together, it seems to me that soya milk and oat milk are probably the most sustainable. Um, and 
I, you know, I have a little bit of a bias in that, you know, soya milk has been used for centuries. And we know a lot about it. There's a lot of studies and there's some definite positive health benefits. So for me, I think given that we know what we know about soya foods and milk in general, um, I probably would have that as my top pick. And it's also um, a good one because it's a great alternative for children. Um, it's a great alternative for children with cows milk allergy um, or, or, you know, cow's protein allergy, I should say. Um, and um, it, because it has the same amount of protein as cow's milk and the fortified versions, which I do recommend, um, have virtually the same amount of calcium that, that parents are expecting to find in, in cow's milk. So it, it's an easy one, but I think it's fine to switch it up and, and use different types. Um, but soya and oat would be my top two picks. It's interesting that you mention children there, because one of the things that people often worry about is the need for children to have milk, I think, and, and dairy milk in particular, specifically. I think we, our generation has very much um, been told overtly and had it highly publicised that you absolutely need milk to have strong bones. Um, and I think it can be hard for people to get out of that and to let that go because it was so strongly pushed as a message when we were growing up. Can you just tell us a bit about um, uh, children and, and milk? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting history, isn't it? When you look into how we've got into the situation, I mean, it's really a triumph of industry marketing um, because there's no need at all for cow's milk in the diet of any human. Um, so um, you have to look back to the World War II and the surplus that was created when the dairy industry was sending out um, you know, dried milk to the troops. And suddenly when the war was over, um, we'd increased our capacity to um, produce milk so much that they were surplus. And so the industry went to work to figure out, well, what can we do with this? And an easy target was, well, let's get it into schools and you know, suddenly school milk and then free school milk. And now we've become so attached to it. Um, but there is absolutely no evidence that you need to have dairy for good health. And we know that all the major dietetic associations, including the British Dietetic Association here in the UK, have firmly um, stated that a 100% plant-based diet is appropriate for all stages uh, of life. That's cradle to grave, essentially. So there is no need. Um, that's the bottom line. Um, but having said that, you know, it is a source of calcium. So when uh, families take uh, milk out of the diet or, or cheese or, or whatever, um, then um, cal you do need to find a healthy replacement for, for, cal for, for calcium. And it's not difficult, but I think it just needs a shift in, in mindset. You know, there's, as I've already said, an easy way is just to get the fortified um, plant milks and soya is great. And um, just having this uh, tofu um, set with calcium um, is a really great way to get um, enough calcium. And also, you know, focusing in on um, a low oxalate but calcium rich greens um, and beans essentially so greens and beans and even things like sesame seeds and um, uh, well as I said already tofu so it's it's just a change of, of sourcing of our nutrients and um, because there's absolutely no data that consuming dairy impacts bone health in a positive way in fact the big studies have shown that the more dairy consumed by a country the higher the rate of fractures now clearly that may not be causation but the opposite can be said that you know dairy consumption does not promote bone health and is not necessary and actually soya foods soya products with their phytoestrogen have a much better evidence base for strong bones in inverted commas and so do fruits and vegetables 
So it sounds like there's sort of overwhelming evidence of a number of wins from a plant-based diet that healthcare professionals really should be able to um, take on board. And many healthcare professionals will be making changes themselves in their diets, really with a concern for their own health, with a concern for the environment. Um, Where can where they might feel a gap is in then being able to feel confident enough in that nutritional information and in the evidence base to then be able to talk to their patients about it. Where can physicians go who would like to get more information on the benefits of a plant-based diet for both the environment, but also very much for the nutritional aspects? Yeah, thank you. Well, obviously my answer is going to come with a whole load of bias, but uh, um, my non-profit organisation or community interest company called Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, we have a website full of free resources. And probably my top pick of resource would just be to download our fact sheet. Um, We've adapted the UK's Eat Well Guide into a plant-based version, um, just showing people in the way that we're used to looking at sort of the Eat Well Guide and the plate, how you can make easy swaps and change it into um, a 100% plant-based diet, or at least make it predominantly plant-based. Because actually, when you look back at our guideline, it is pretty plant-based, actually, if you read the small print I think most most of the problem is that we're just not even following those general guidelines so we've made it easy and made it 100% plant-based but then we've also got lots of fact sheets on those common questions like about iodine and tofu and bone health and heart health and how to keep your cholesterol healthy on a plant-based diet so um, lots of great information there I'd also point you to the um, BDA website as well the British Dietetic Association because they've got great fact sheets and they've also got um, their own um, sustainability campaign called the One Blue Dot campaign um, that's sort of a toolkit um, in, for, for their dietitians. So if there's any dietitians watching, you'll know about this, um, that um, you know, can easily help um, dietitians to support their clients um, to adopt a sustainable um, diet. And they're very supportive of a plant-based diet, however far you want to um, go on that journey. There have been some recent reports out um, that are really helping the NHS to move forward with its pledge to become net zero. So there was the recent net zero NHS report out, and there was also a recent review on hospital food. They both talk about the link between food and the environment, but they tend to be a relatively small section of those reports. One thing I noticed was that there's a lot of focus in the net zero report on uh, medicines and inhalers and anesthetic gases, absolutely rightly, because they're such a big proportion of the carbon footprint of the NHS. But there's kind of one small paragraph on food. And in the hospital food review, there's some really good stuff around food waste. But again, there aren't clear messages or recommendations from these reports on the NHS and its food environment, which to me seemed like a gap considering what we know about the huge contribution of the food system to climate change. What do you wish that those reports would have said in terms of the NHS's responsibilities around the food system? Yeah, thank you. It's so important, isn't it? Because, you know, people's encounter with hospitals, you know, GP surgeries should be teachable moments where we're showing people how to live a healthy, sustainable life that's going to promote health. And I think food is such a good way of teaching people how to be healthy. Um, Yet we're so used to walking into hospitals that are still serving, you know, bacon sandwiches and sausages and, you know, processed red meats that are a known group one carcinogen to both patients and staff. And I think this review 
could have been a really important opportunity to put into practice what we know about the impact of an unhealthy diet on on health outcomes, essentially. Um, And as you say, putting it together with the climate impacts, I would have liked to have seen that red and processed meat were completely taken off um, the menu entirely. Um, Because as you referred to in the Lancet report, they clearly state that zero grams of red meat is the optimal amount because there's a dose effect and, you know, even eating, um, you know, a portion a day or a couple of portions a week will be adversely affecting your health. And as we've described already, um, production of red meat is very much um, uh, the the main contributor of the animal um, industry to climate change. So I would have liked to have seen that clearly off um, the menu and supporting people to make um, plant-based meal choices, the kind of default um, you know, it, we, we worry so much about allergies and, um, you know, uh, religious and preferences, as we should. But when you put together the bare bones of a plant-based diet, it's appropriate for every diet pattern. You know, if you served predominantly vegan meals, they can even be gluten-free. If you choose grains like, uh, you know, quinoa and and what have you that don't even have gluten, you can have a universal meal that is not only healthy, but sustainable. And then, you know, you may have small sections where people can make additional choices of, you know, more sustainable um, uh, animal foods like, uh, you know, eggs or or, uh, chicken. Um, But um, the default should be something that's, applicable to everybody. And that I would have thought would have actually reduced uh, food waste waste considerably if if the default meal is appropriate for for all um, beliefs and religious um, viewpoints as well. What do you think the barriers are? I mean, I I hear a lot about choice and about not um, mandating what people eat, um, which I think is really interesting because within a hospital environment, we already we already dictate people's behaviors on the basis of the fact that it's a health providing institution and that therefore we won't encourage or or sanction things that are going to impair people's health. So we have smoke free environments and actually we don't have high sugar drinks allowed on on hospital grounds to be sold. What do you think? The, what's the difference between the difficulty in having conversations about things like removing meat? Right. Yeah, it's it's hard. And I guess we've both tried it in our, our workplace and ongoing conversations. I think there's a there's a great financial motive there because we have outsourced our food system to um the food industry and to corporations that at the end of the day need to make money. And the only way they're going to make money is if people buy their um, products. So certainly for the retail aspects of of what food um, the hospitals are serving, that's relevant. Maybe less so um, when it comes to what's being served in the actual wards. But having said that, we know that the hospital wants to get good feedback from patients and patients give good feedback when they see and receive meals that they're used to having um, and are not denied um, their sort of comfort foods and inadverted commas. So I think there's a fear that if you change something that you're going to start getting a bad um, review and reputation and that's going to be problematic. Um, and, you know, I think as an in, on an individual level, nobody likes to be told that what they've been doing for the last few decades has been wrong and they have to rethink things. And food is so embedded in our cultural 
and social uh, identity, how we celebrate, how we um, enjoy time with our friends, how we socialize with our family. Um, but it's it's a bit more than just, you know, what top you're going to wear or, or, you know, what shoes you're going to put on today. So I think there's, there's a lot um, that goes into making our food choices. Um, but I think that shouldn't stop us trying to um, educate people through the hospital environment, because I think on some level, when people really do understand the facts, especially at a moment when they may be unwell or their family members may be unwell, it's a real motivation for people. Um, and as we said right at the beginning, people's motivations differ, but you do have to tap into that, you know, why for that individual and if somebody who's just had surgery for bowel cancer will be ready to receive that information. And we should be right there supporting them to make a healthy, sustainable change, because the good news message is that it's never too late when it comes to um, health impacts. And also we're at a stage where we're being told that it, it isn't too late for the climate crisis. If we change now, you know, in the next few years, we could make a, a big, big impact on the future health of our planet. So um, those are some thoughts, but it's a complicated topic. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I have started to talk more about diet and more confidently about diet in my consultations but it took me to have a bit more knowledge to feel confident in those conversations um and as you say it's important to come where people are so um any message about behavior change as we know from our training when we're talking about smoking or drug use or inactivity we use motivational interviewing techniques and we and we try to help people to shift their behaviors to a, to a more health sustaining one. Um, what works for you? What advice would you have in terms of talking about plant-based diets and how you discuss that with patients um, in a consultation? Yeah, no, it, it's a difficult topic and you're absolutely right. You have to individualize the um, advice because you know in our workplace we know we see people who are quite affluent but we see people who are food insecure who don't even have um, you know a secure home that might be losing their job because we've given them a life-altering health diagnosis so it is very difficult I guess in my practice in cancer care everyone asks me um, so they they open the conversation which makes life a little bit easier now what can I do is there anything I can do to make things um, better for myself and so that's that's great and you know nobody's surprised when I tell them they should be eating more fruits and vegetables so it uh, fundamentally I think everyone knows this um, but the bigger piece is to support them to make those sustainable changes so we have to really try and link people up with communities get their families on board and ultimately have a, a system in place that supports people to make healthy choices um, accessible um, regardless of, of, of their, their means um, but coming back to your question I, I guess we just have to, I, I try and figure out what the individual's baseline diet is and what small changes can be uh, made because I'll be seeing them quite a few times during their cancer journey. And so, you know, just doing things like um, swapping out um, refined grains or white um, bread, for example, for brown bread will make a great, you know, a, a shift in the way they think about food. Um, you know, swapping out um, a meal of meat in, in a day for something with beans or just going half and half um, to start with, we'll, we'll start that change. And just um, talking to them about the foods that are known to promote health and which ones should be minimized. Uh, I don't talk about going vegan or 100% plant-based. 
And it, and again, it is easy for me because the World Cancer Research Fund guidelines say eat a dirt rich in fruits, vegetables, whole grains and, and beans. And so I can point them to the cancer uh, World Cancer Research Fund website and say, well, these are the guidelines. So, you know, you can back it up with that. And, and you know, if people are there, come with their family members and um, then hopefully you, you get people involved as a family um, to be enjoying the same healthy meals together. That's great. Thank you. I think um, reminding ourselves that it, that this is the guidelines, that uh, a plant predominant diet is what's in all of the international guidelines and for multiple um, specialist organisations as well is really useful. And as you say, I think maybe we don't implement those guidelines well enough anyway. So actually some of this is just about making a shift to align with what society is already telling us. And then with the additional motivation of the climate crisis, just seems to be such a good opportunity to kind of um, uh, accelerate this change. So one thing that can happen if you start talking about um, the real benefits for the climate, for individual health, for world food poverty, um, is that people come at you with uh, reasons why they don't want to change. And that's obviously very natural. Any change is hard. And so often a real defense is like to come up with all the arguments why I can't possibly make this change. And so we often come across these myths. So I just wanted to cover two or three with you, if that's okay, um, to help our listeners who might be on this journey and then might get faced with these myths and then need something to be able to respond back to. Um, And the top one has got to be, where do you get your protein? So uh, for some reason, when you change your diet to a more plant-based diet, everyone becomes obsessed with your protein intake, whereas they didn't care at all before. Um, What Do vegans and people moving to a more plant-based diet need to worry about their protein intake? The simple answer is absolutely not. Um, as long as you're meeting your calorie requirements on a varied diet, um, like we've already described, you know, lots of fruits, vegetables, whole grains and beans, you will be exceeding your um, protein requirements. And this has been shown in large studies that have compared um, different diet patterns. So um, a really well-known study is um, the Epic Oxford study um, run here in the UK, you know, comparing omnivores, pescatarians, um, lactover vegetarians and vegans. And all of these diet patterns, if they're meeting the calorie requirements, way exceed protein. And, you know, if I'm feeling facetious, I say, well, where, where do the great apes get their protein? Where do giraffes and elephants? You know, our largest land animals manage to eat a predominantly herbivorous diet and are the strongest, largest animals on this planet. So we we do the same. Um, And and also I'm more concerned about where do you get your fiber? Um, So I think somehow we've been um, conditioned to worry about protein, carbohydrates and uh, uh, fat and and not worry about the other micronutrients that um, we're all lacking in. Another big one that comes up is, oh, well, that's all very well telling me to go vegan, but vegan food's really expensive. So that's really coming from, you know, a very privileged perspective. So you can't be preaching this. Um, what do you say to that? Yeah, no, well, I think it, that that is a broader question. Um, and actually, it depends what sort of, um, you know, vegan or plant based diet you're adopting. Um, because if you switch from uh, a highly processed omnivorous diet where you're buying, you know, burgers and ready made lasagnas and, you know, beef stroganoff or or whatever, and you switch it to the plant based alternative, well, yeah, those sort of processed alternatives do have a 
um, price point and a higher price point at the moment because the demand isn't there to bring down that price. Although having said that, certain supermarkets like Co-op have agreed to bring their plant-based versions in line price-wise with their um, non-plant-based versions. So that's a great step. Um, and also um, some of the supermarket-owned brands of soya and oat milk are pennies. You know, they're really cheap. But essentially, you and I are talking about adopting a healthy plant-based diet, one that's made up of all the minimally processed foods. And those foods like whole grains, um, like brown rice and um, couscous and, and um, um, beans and chickpeas and things are extraordinarily cheap, especially if um, you can buy them in bulk, um, assuming you've got somewhere to store them. Um, having fruits and vegetables frozen or tinned is a good way of bringing um, down the, the, the price. Um, and I think when, um, well, I know when price comparisons have been made with a healthy omnivorous diet versus a healthy plant-based diet, they're pretty much equivalent. I, I think the problem we actually face as a society is that healthy foods in general are more expensive than the processed foods. And that was very nicely highlighted in the national um, food strategy um, plan that calorie for calorie, something like broccoli, um, 100 calories of broccoli is going to cost you more than 100 calories of chips, for example. So calorie um, quality can be cheap, um, but focusing on a healthy diet, whether it's plant-based or or pesco vegetarian or whatever there is no price and difference if you do it well it's also assuming that people have a freezer and somewhere to store these things so there are barriers but um for, for a lot of us and certainly for you and me and many hospital workers it is perfectly possible to do it e equally um you know in terms of cost um without without um uh, losing out there um you mentioned that the national food strategy and I just wondered what you thought about the levers that are needed at a food system level to get to where we need to be in terms of changing the food system to support the ongoing life of the planet. So we know that the current food system, if it continues in the way it does with us, um, reliant on animal agriculture and traveling large distances for a lot of our food, that we won't meet the Paris climate agreements, even if we um, manage to decarbonize the grid and do all these other things in order to make things less carbon intensive. Um, there is some pushback from kind of big levers at a state level in terms of changing our food system. What what are your thoughts on, on the national food strategy and on those changes that need to be made at, at a kind of parliamentary level? Yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised by the national food strategy. It did make some um, decent recommendations. Of course, you know, for you and me, it's not going far enough. But you know, it recommended a thirty percent reduction in meat consumption in the UK, with a fifty percent increase in um, uh, fibre consumption, and also about thirty percent increase in fruits and vegetables. Um, so what that requires is that from farm to fork, um, we have a food system that provides us with healthy, nutritious, sustainable food. And what the National Food Strategy clearly described is that we have none of that currently. We, we use 75% of farmland in the UK to raise animals for food. Um, a type of food in inverted commas that none of us require, um, we, but we choose to eat it. 
Um, yet the government supports that as its primary um, production of food. Um, in, we actually export some of our meat, yet we're in a situation that the healthiest foods that we do need to eat, fruits and vegetables, for example, we're importing a large uh, majority of that, and we're not currently able to produce it. Um, the government and policies support animal farmers disproportionately compared to um, arable farmers. Um, and so we need to shift that. We need to support our farmers who are essential in this food system to produce the food that not only is healthy and required for our human health, but will sustain us um, and our land and our habitat and all the animals that, that live with us. Um, and so once we're producing the right food, we need to make sure that we're advertising and marketing the right food. You know, we see adverts for unhealthy foods where hardly any money is spent on advertising fruits and vegetables compared to sugary drinks, processed foods, you know, all the kind of McDonald's and KFC type adverts. We need our education system to change. We need to have schools, hospitals, prisons, um, public sector catering, all showing us how to eat that healthy plant-based meal. We need to teach families and children how to cook bring back the cooking knowledge and skills and allow them the time within their day, the budget within salaries to be able to afford this. Um, and then, you know, the easiest thing we can do right this minute, if it is in our gift, is to make that change now to shift to a plant-based diet because we can. It's the single most important thing you can do as an individual to um, positively impact the climate and ecological crisis and as a happy byproduct, improve your own health as, as well. So if you're able to, you could do it immediately without needing to wait for um, the changes to be made by policymakers and legislators. I think it's also important to um, recognise the fact that individual changes then drive the bigger picture. So the reason there are now 15 different brands of plant-based milk in my local Tesco is because there's an increased demand for that and therefore they then stock it. So sometimes it, the climate crisis can feel very overwhelming and actually things like your diet are very much in your own control and do have these knock-on effects for the bigger picture. So if you just had one message for healthcare professionals concerned about the climate, what would it be? I would say that the most impactful thing you can do today, if you haven't done it already, is remove red and processed meat from your diet and swap out the dairy for a healthy plant plant-based milk option. Those are the two really important things that you can do and then support your patients to do the same. Okay, well, I hope you found that interesting. Um, it was really great to speak to Shireen, who, as you can tell, is an absolute wealth of knowledge. What did you guys think? Well, I feel like I've learned so many things. I thought I was clued up, but firstly, I mean, yeah, she had so many great things to say, so many details about specific food types, like the fact that you can get, you know, enough, get really good bone health from soya milk and you don't need dairy. I thought she did a lot of good myth busting, but I think the take home for me is probably that a third of greenhouse gas emissions come from our food industry. And that if more people knew that, I think we would having, be having a much bigger conversation about food. Yeah, I, when I first heard that, I was really shocked by that too. Um, it's such a huge amount of the UK's kind of carbon footprint. And so such an area that we should be working on. And the fact that of those greenhouse gas emissions, just over a half are from animal agriculture. It just shows that there's real potential 
to have a really significant impact by making changes to our diet. Mm. How about you, John? Yeah, I it was great. I was uh, listening like with my pen, just wanting to write everything down, being like, I want to be able to repeat that at like a family dinner and just tell everyone that they need to go vegetarian. <laughs> um, but I think I think the stuff that got me quite excited was actually how you know there is definitely a growing evidence base for plant based diets in terms of recommending them to patients because you know they are going to generate better outcomes in particular for chronic diseases. And so I, I think I'm excited about that evidence base. And, you know, if it does come into our, I, I think we're quite a long way from convincing the general public to go to plant-based diets, right? Like what percentage of the population are, are vegan or vegetarian? It's pretty low. However, if you start telling people that, you know, their diabetes, their heart disease and their other illnesses genuinely could improve with a plant-based diet then I think you could actually start to shift the dial a little bit yeah I really hope so I think um I have always felt like my knowledge of nutrition has been quite lacking and that we really don't get enough education as part of our medical curriculum and there's a real drive to change that currently mostly in the U.S. and with some really big names but increasingly um internationally and I think it will get to the point where it's it's no longer acceptable and patients will very much be expecting us to be more knowledgeable about dietary interventions. And hopefully then we can start having this as part of our routine conversations in our clinics. Yeah, and I definitely. totally agree. It, it doesn't take everyone to go fully vegan, but um, going further away from processed foods, more towards whole grain plant-based diets is, has so many benefits. Yeah. We spend such a long time, you know, take something like there's something like atrial fibrillation when someone comes into clinic. You spend such a long time discussing the drugs that they're on. You spend ages talking about warfarin, bisoprolol, water digoxin, and you spend absolutely no time talking about the fact that they might go home and have a terrible diet. And, you know, I hate to say it, there's obviously probably some pharmaceutical historical involvement in that and in that we're so drug focused, but I, there really needs to be a shift in our the way we sort of manage patients to, to include diet more and more. And I think, as you acknowledge, the, the key to this is that this is evidence-based. This is not anecdote. This is not nice to have. This is evidence-based medicine. And um, some of the most striking evidence is in the areas of diabetes and coronary artery disease. And I think once you've seen a paper that will show you an angiogram with coronary artery disease, and then the only intervention was a plant-based diet, and then you see a repeat angiogram with regression of plaques, you just can't unsee that. Like that's what we went into medicine for is to cure people and to reverse disease and to help them live as good a lives as possible. And so we're really missing a huge intervention if we don't think about diet alongside all the things that, that, that we already kind of think about. Yeah, it just it's just not taught as a risk factor, is it? So it's no. just it's not even there. LJ, I think there's loads of stuff uh, that we're going to link into the show notes that you probably referenced um, during the show. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first thing I'd say is go to the plant based healthcare professionals website. There's loads of really great well-referenced information leaflets there on common questions about plant-based diets. And there's a really brilliant adapted version of the Eat Well Guide that's great for supporting conversations about dietary changes in clinic with interested patients. Um, and I would really definitely give um, Shireen a follow if you're on uh, social media because she does a weekly roundup of new papers on diet and nutrition. So that's a great way to keep up to date on what, what's going on in this space in terms of the data. Nice. Great. Here at Journal Spotting, we love roundups. Okay, so now that we've heard so much about our pl plant-based diets, I'm wondering what challenge LJ 
the lowest carbon footprint of everyone here by <laughs> a few miles is going to set us today. What do, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think it is obvious. <laughs> I mean, we've just heard all this really amazing information about the fact that, you know, if we were going to do one thing today ourselves to really make an impact in terms of climate change, then the one thing we could do is change our tyres. And that's all of us. So whatever starting point we're starting from, there are shifts we can make that can have a really huge impact. So my challenge to you this time around is to just take that next step. So, you know, if you're currently eating meat five times a week, which is the average UK um, uh, consumption, then try and reduce that. If you are already a flexitarian, then perhaps try and cut out meat completely. So wherever you are on your on your path, try and get as close as possible to a fully plant-based diet, which is delicious, I have to tell you. Mm. And just so that we're clear, we're going to tell Barney that the challenge is that we all have to go paleo for the month, <laughs> that he can't cook any food. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's going to be very, uh, yeah, it's going to be good. Uh, yeah. Already vegetarian, but could definitely do with reducing my dairy consumption. So yeah, looking forward to the challenge. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah. I think we're going to go, I'm going to try and go from vegetarian to dairy free or maybe just cows products free. Well, I think, yeah, I think definitely pick something that you think you can do and you can keep doing long-term because then, you know, that's a sustainable change and try and do the most impactful thing that you can think of. So as we've heard, you know, cows are a big problem in terms of their mm. methane emissions, the land use, all of the things. So that's a good place to go. Great. Go with it's been sanctioned by LJ. <laughs> <laughs> LJ, thanks so much. And yeah, huge thank you to Shireen for a fantastic interview. And we will catch up on our next Climate Zone. Yeah. See you soon. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Journal Spotting. Special thanks to promotion team Abby and Isabel, logo designer Natalia Florman. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests, and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.